Palace Perspective is brought to you by Palace Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm with locations in the Northeast, specializing in financial and estate planning solutions, investment management strategies, and family office services for high net worth families across the country. Now, here's your host, James Landry. Welcome to the Palace Perspective, the podcast that brings you conversations and professional analysis on the topics and trends affecting your everyday financial life. I'm your host, James Landry, and I'm glad you chose to listen in today. Today, we're going to talk about the Biden administration's recent Green Book proposals. And joining me again for the discussion is Palace's CFO and partner, Charles Evangelakos. Charlie, welcome back. Thanks, James. Glad to be back. So, Charlie, at the end of last month, the Biden administration released its general explanations of the administration's fiscal year 2023 revenue proposals, also known as the 2023 Green Book. Now, I should, we were chatting just a few moments ago. This is not to be confused with the 2018 movie Green Book. Totally different Green Book. That was a great movie, by the way. Have you seen it? I saw it, James. Uh, won three Oscars. Great movie. Yeah, I think it actually won the Academy Award for Best best, best, best Film, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. It was a good one. <clears throat> Viggo Mortensen, I think, was the one of the leads there from the, oh, I can't remember, The Hobbit or Return of the King or something like that, one of those uh, movies. But in the green book that we're going to talk about today, nearly 50 proposals total 114 pages and represent the first comprehensive tax revenue-raising proposals from the Biden administration, really since Build Back Better failed to advance in Congress late last year. So, Charlie, why are the green book proposals so interesting? Well, James, it's the Green Book proposals are interesting because they describe in detail what the administration's current thinking is about increasing tax revenue. And if history has any indication, is any indication, will foreshadow what the Biden administration will advance publicly. All right. So let's go over a few of the proposals. I say a few because I've actually read through the Green Book, well, not cover to cover, but it's 115 pages long. And if I counted, I think there's nearly 50 different proposals. But why don't we just talk about the proposals that would impact, you know, a taxpayer from an estate or income tax perspective, which is a lot, but the ones that affect most of our clients or potentially could impact most of our clients. So let's go over a few of those today. And I think the first one we've been talking about for a while because it's been proposed not just in this Green Book, but was proposed last year. And uh, in the Green Book, but also, and by the way, we should also mention the Green Book is something that happens every year. So President's administration releases this Green Book every year. So it's not unique to 2022 for sure. But, you know, so it was in the proposal last year, but also the House Ways and Means Committee talked about it in their proposal in the fall. So, and that's to increase the top marginal income tax rate. So you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is the, this is the simple low-hanging fruit, James. This is the income tax, federal income tax rate raising from 35 to 39.6%. So self-explanatory, very simple. For high wage earners that make a combined, for unmarried individuals, $400,000, and for married couples earning over $225,000. Okay, but, you know, a jump from 37 to 39.6% is, is you know, somewhat significant for those highest uh, bracket taxpayers. So we'll see if that carries out. And, and I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, that under current law, the 37% jumps to 39.6% on January 1, 2026. Is that is that right at the back yeah. of your head? Yes, James. That's when yeah. the, the, the tax plan that the Trump administration had put in place sunsets in the year 2026. Right. So this is just advancing that up to yeah. current day. Okay, Correct. great. A uh, big one, though, <clears throat> in terms of the realm of you know income or uh, capital gains tax changes is this reformation of taxation of capital income. 
And the first one has to do with taxing capital income for high-income earners, not at capital gains rates, but at ordinary income rates. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that's meaningful, right? So if people that sell their home and or sell a cap, you know, an investment or a capital asset, well, the rate goes from the current 20% to 39.6%, double, a double in rates. Well, yeah. I mean, so that's if rates do go up to 39.6, right? So, but that's only for people that have, have income over a, a threshold. I think it's a million dollars. Correct. Yeah. So won't be everyone. But yeah. if you, like you said, you have a business, a big year, and you're liquidating the business, what are people going to be doing now to avoid this, you know, punitive tax increase? Well, it's going to change their pattern of behavior. I'll give you an example. This this hurts all the common. This hurts the middle age, middle class as well as the wealthy because the, the, you talk about a million dollars of income. However, there are middle class people that work their whole lives that have one event, liquidity event. They sell their home. They sell their business. They have a stock they've been holding on for twenty, thirty years. And at one point, you know, you you could in in states, in a state like Massachusetts where we are, you can have as high as a four, almost a fifty percent tax rate on that gain. Between federal tax thirty nine point six, mass tax of five percent or so, and also the net investment income tax, also known as the Obamacare tax of three point eight, so yeah. it'd be tough to sw- that's a tough one to swallow for a lot of people. Yeah, and as well, I would imagine for certainly for business owners, they'd be looking at things like spreading out that taxation over multiple years, like an installment sale. Correct would be something they'd they'd consider. Well, we'll see. But here's a biggie, sort of underneath this this category of reformation of the taxation of capital income, which is treating transfers of appreciated property by gift or on death as realization events, in quotation marks, realization events. So what do I, what do I mean by that? And this was, this proposal, by the way, is it's not the first time we've seen this before last year. Having an appreciated asset that you don't actually sell, but you dispose of via gift, you know, to another generation or to a trust for that family member, that's considered to be a deemed realization or deemed sale, and then there's a capital gain recognition at that point in time, even though you haven't sold the asset. Yeah, so give us an example, James, of that. So if I own a home and I want to <clears throat> gift it to my children, and I have, you know, I bought it for $100,000 and now it's worth a million, I gift it to my children, I'm going to realize a $900,000 gain. Yeah, that's that's right. And, and then here's another little unique one. Even if you don't transfer uh, property, let's say you had an inherited property that had never been sold and you've had it for some time, they uh, the Green Book proposes that gain on unrealized appreciation would also be recognized by a trust, a partnership, or other non-corporate entity that is the owner of the property if that property had never been subject to a quote-unquote recognition event within the last 90 years. So what they're trying to do is you can't hold on to an asset forever and avoid this, you know, realization event in tax. So the way that the proposal works is that the first recognition event would be deemed to occur on December 31st, 2030. Well, why is that? Well, the provision only applies to property not subject to a recognition event since December 31st, 1939. This is in the proposal. So, you know, 90 years later, here you are, December 31, 2030. I mean, that's, oh, here we are in 2022. That's eight years from now. That could be a big tax. James, my eyes glaze over things like this, and things could change in the next eight years as well. But yes, you're correct. You know, what's one other interesting is is that things that we uh, talk to clients about, how do we, you've got an appreciated asset, certainly a single security appreciated stock. One of the very common strategies that an advisor would be talking to a client about would be, hey, if you're charitably inclined, why not look at donating this asset to or stock 
to a charitable remainder trust. This is what we call a split interest trust. Charitable remainder trust is there's two parties, the charity and also the donor or the donor's family. Normally, that gift to a CRT would not be a deemed recognition event. As a matter of fact, you would get an income tax deduction for it. But underneath the proposal, the transfer of appreciated assets to a split interest trust would be subject to the capital gains tax with an exclusion from that tax allowed for the charity share. So that really kind of waters down to some extent the effectiveness of those types of strategies. So let's drill on that a little bit. So what do you, what do you mean by just explain to the audience what you mean by the split interest? So. Yeah, so a split interest trust is a trust that has split interest. In other words, it, it has a divided interest. It has two different parties that it serves. A charitable remainder trust is a is a really common example of this. I donated appreciated stock to a charitable remainder trust. I get a tax deduction, income tax deduction, because that CRT is a tax-exempt entity. The CRT will pay me a stream or the, my family members a stream of, of payments for a term of years or for my lifetime. And then at the completion of that period of time, whatever's left goes to charity. So there's the charitable interest. So it's split into two interests. Well, you would get an income tax deduction and you would avoid or spread out the capital gains tax on the sale of the asset. Here, underneath the proposal, Charlie, you would recognize capital gain tax upon a gift of that property to the trust itself, right. uh, which is going to be problematic for some people that had you know enjoyed the strategy before. Yeah, well, because these are these are <clears throat> widely used trusts, and charities benefit dramatically from these donations. And, and yeah. I think, like I said, behavior is going to change, and there's going to be less of these type of transactions. So this is one I'm going to I find is be hard for that to get approved. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, the administration, you know, recognizes the difficulty and challenge of getting some of this across the table, right? And so what they did, if you recall, this was around last year, there was an exemption to this built-in or unrecognized uh, gain recognition event. Mm -hmm. It was a million dollars. Well, they've raised that exemption now. It's $5 million. And that exemption, I believe, is also portable between spouses if you were to die and not have used that. So, they're doing everything they can to to make this so that it will pass muster with at least, you know, 50% of Congress. Yep. There's some details. And I, by the way, I just want to talk to our listeners. We, we've we written a, a nice newsletter we're publishing this month about the Green Book and all these things that we're going to be talking about, plus more, will be in that newsletter. So for details, go there. We'll have a direct link to the Green Book itself. So if you really um, have t- trouble sleeping, Charlie, you can read the 115 pages there uh, as you fall asleep. Let's talk about perhaps maybe the headline piece of this Green Book proposal. And we've seen uh, quite a bit of this in the press, and and I'm sure you've seen it too. And that's this so-called billionaire's income tax. And really, I think that that description is a little confusing. I'll I'll be charitable and say confusing, right? But it definitely is designed to capture votes. So tell us a little bit about what this billionaire's income tax is. Yeah, this is different from the billionaire tax that was proposed several years ago about having a 2% tax and your net worth. This is a proposal that would impose a minimum of 20% of total income, which includes unrealized gains starting at $100 million and phases up to 20% at $200 billion. Well, starting $100 million of assets that the person would have. Yes, net worth. So far far lower than a billion. Yes, far lower yeah. than a billion, but not poor. Look at me wrong. But, <laughs> but my, so unrealized gains, this is clients that own privately held businesses, own real estate, own stocks. They would be taxed on those unrealized gains. Yeah, and the trouble with that is, you know, what's the value of those assets? Yeah. Right? I have no idea how the government would keep track of this. Like, I look at this, I made some notes here. How do you determine the value, right, of a privately held business, of a piece of property? 
uh, non-liquid assets, if I own land, farmland, all those types, how do you value those? What happens if the value goes down the following year after you pay the tax? Yeah. Does the IRS give you a refund? <laughs> you know, do we need to value our assets each and every year and then adjust? What if it goes from 200 to 250 million? Does that include that now? Does that include assets you give away? What if I give assets in an irrevocable trust? Are those included? So there are so many loopholes and questions around this and how the government would administer this would be very challenging. Well, the administration is going to be expensive and I would say very difficult to do. The proposal does include a methodology for valuing non-tradable assets, like some of the things you just mentioned. It also even suggests the IRS may offer avenues for taxpayers to challenge or appeal a valuation that was determined. So, you know, we'll see. But, you know, the thing that always uh, gets me is it's not an income tax. It's a wealth tax. And it's not for billionaires. It's for the people that are, you know, employing a lot of America today. And those are small business owners that, you know, could have. And you said they're not poor people. They're, they're wealthy people. But it's going to be very difficult, I think, to administrate. <clears throat> very difficult. But they've gotten into a little more detail this time around. Like they right. do have methods of valuing the assets. They do have installment payments, by the way. So you don't have to pay it all up in one year. So just yeah. stay, stay tuned on this one. There'll be a lot more discussion on it. Charlie, let's go on to the next topic, which is the proposal that deals with modifying income estate and gift tax rules for certain grantor trusts. And before you, you talk a little bit about that, I will just point out that last fall under the House Ways and Means Committee proposal, one of the things that got everyone sort of alarmed was they proposed that any gifts that a grantor made to his irrevocable trust, his irrevocable grantor trust, would cause all the, after the date of their proposal, which would have been this year, January 1 of this year, would cause all of the property in that trust to be included back in the grantor's estate. Well, that was really problematic for a very common strategy, which is the use of life insurance in a trust, or the so-called irrevocable life insurance trust, or ILIT for short. Now people couldn't figure out how they were going to make gifts to those trusts so that the trustee could make a premium payment for the life insurance because of this rule. Thankfully, well, at least thankfully in part of those people, right, the insurance lobby is a huge lobby, powerful lobby in Washington. And so under the current proposals, that is no longer part of it. So that, in other words, additional gifts underneath the current proposals will not cause an inclusion of the property of inside an irrevocable trust back in the grantor's estate. But there are some things that, you know, high net worth individuals have relied on in, in the realm of estate planning and grantor trusts. And one of the most common of those is the ability to freeze the growth of their estate by using a sale transaction to a grantor trust. And it looks like the proposals, again, want to take that away. Yes, James, that is, grantor trusts are one of the most widely and most effective estate planning tools individuals have today. So grantor trust, when, you, when I sell an asset to an irrevocable trust in the form of a grantor trust means I, the person making the gift, created the trust, I do not realize a gain. By eliminating that grantor trust status, anytime I would sell any asset to these irrevocable trusts, I will realize a gain of the asset, which is a sea change in this industry. So, And don't also forget that underneath the proposals we talked about at the beginning, even if I were to gift an appreciated asset to a grant or trust under these proposals, now I have a deemed recognition event, right? Yeah. And so I could have a capital gains tax if I've exceeded my $5 million exemption that the proposals would allow for me to have. The other thing that's interesting is, you know, one of the, you, you may have just said this, the grantor trust, one of the real advantages is, is that that income generated by a grantor trust would result in an income tax bill to the grantor. The very fact that the grantor pays that income tax bill 
the IRS says that trust is disregarded as a separate taxpayer. So the, when the grantor pays that income tax bill, it's not considered to be a gift by the grantor to his grantor trust. So if I had millions of dollars of taxes over years that I had paid, that's millions of dollars of non-taxable gifts I was able to move over into that trust. Not so anymore. The proposal also provides that the payment of the income tax on the income of a grantor trust is a gift by the grantor to that trust. Correct. I would say, though, this has been on the uh, list year after year after year after year to elimination of the grantor trust status. Again, last year with the Build Back Better plan, didn't didn't get enacted. So here we are again. And I'll just say, you know, for the sake of time, I won't go into details. I just encourage people to read the newsletter. Grats, grantor retain annuity trusts, which are part of the code, right, and have been for a long time. Again, the proposals, just as prior administrations have proposed a modification to some of the planning around grats. So really diluting the effectiveness of grats in, in the realm of estate planning. And that's all that we have time we have to say about that. I'll just mention uh, another proposal was to uh, require consistent valuation of promissory notes. What do I mean by that? So one of the very common strategies for a high net worth taxpayer to, to use would be to, like we said, sell an asset to a trust or to a family member and or to lend an asset to a trust or to a family member on exchange for a promissory note. Correct. And the IRS publishes the interest rates that you can use on those promissory notes in order for no portion of that transfer to be deemed as a gift, a taxable gift between you and your trust or your family member. So you're using the fair market value of that note in the estate. It's, it's, it's deemed as a gift. However, when that person passes away, the person who made the loan or sold the, because that promissory note that's in his estate, it used a very low interest rate, right? And because the payments are based on the future payment schedule down the road, people have successfully been able to argue there's a discount being able to be applied to the value of that note in the estate. So transfer with no use of your gift tax exemption during a lifetime, and at death, the value of that outstanding note can be discounted. The IRS is saying no more, or the proposals are saying, I should say, no more consistent valuation of promissory notes. Let's talk about the next uh, topic, which is, quote unquote, I'll put those air quotes out there improving tax administration for trusts and estates. What, what do we got going there, Charlie? That's essentially a big brother wants to start watching your trusts where they haven't had an opportunity in the past, didn't have an eye into the valuations, the values of these trusts. So, Yeah, why would the IRS want to see what's in my trust? Because there's, uh, again, res- uh, revenue raise is, you know, green book. It's all about revenue and raising uh, revenue for the IRS. Yeah, and there's some, you're right. So, I mean, anytime that the IRS has visibility into what you've earned or what you have, like we say, the R and IRS stands for revenue and they want to see it. So, you know, you just have to be concerned there about that type of visibility. It also increases the chances of audits for a lot of these trusts that have been around for multi-generations. Sure, sure, absolutely. There's a couple, you know, smaller points that just touch on that have to do with Internal Revenue Code Section 30, or sorry, 6324, which has to do with tax liens that are applied to an estate where it's unpaid estate and gift taxes. And those liens go for, you know, 10 years. Um, the problem is, is if you're a business owner and you decided to pay your estate taxes under an installment sale plan under Section 6166, that installment sale, I think, in some cases can go out, you know, 13, 14 years beyond the period of that lien. Well, the proposals say, you know, we're just going to extend that lien for the unpaid balance, the full, full term. And then also, you know, a more favorable proposal for the taxpayer is special use valuation. So people that have a lot of farmland, then they can, you know, 
take a lower valuation on that farmland for its actual use, you know? And so there was a limit to the amount of the reduction in value cap under current law. It's $1.23 million. The proposals say, you know, we're going to raise that cap up to $11.7 million. So for farmers that have a ton of land they are yep. actually using for farming, this is actually good news, yeah, right? It's, it's not no longer the highest and best use for a piece of property. Right. It's based on the actual use, which yeah. is a benefit for the farmer. Right, right. Uh, let's talk about the next topic, limiting duration of generation skipping transfer tax exemption. Oh, what's that even mean? Well, you... A generation skipping trust uh, is a trust that could transfer or continue for multiple generations, in some cases forever, in, 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 the, in perpetuity in many states, where a family, each generation has access to the trust assets as far as income and principal, and then it, it'll transfer to the next generation with zero tax, and it continues on forever, technically. But the new, the new proposal here limits that to two generations. So at the end of Gen, gen 2, the value of that trust will be taxed as an, as an estate and pay the currently 40, 40% estate tax. It's not just two generations, two generations who were alive yes. at the time that yep. the, the, the creation of the trust. Yep. So much shorter duration than certainly you could set up in Alaska or Delaware or even Florida right now. Well, you're thinking about the Rockefeller family <clears throat> and all these families that have parked money in these trusts for you know hundreds of years and never being taxed from a state tax standpoint. So they're trying to get access to those funds. Charlie, you like real estate, right? I do. Let's talk about like-kind exchanges. Internal Revenue Code Section 1031, like-kind exchanges under current law. You can exchange, you know, rental property, investment use property for another property of like-kind and defer recognition of any capital gains. Uh, and you can do that as long as the day is, you know, as you, as you want under current law. Yep. The proposals change that. Yes. So just to give a little uh, explanation on 1031 exchanges, if an investment property is sold, the seller has uh, 45 days to identify three properties and then 180 days to close to buy a replacement property and defer the gain if they buy a property of equal or greater value. Very widely used in the real estate industry. And if they keep deferring, 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 and under current law, they could actually get a basis step up if they own the property at death. Yeah. Yes, it's commonly used. Yeah. And so they're going to limit that to a $500,000 limit. Married couple, $1 million. Anything over that will be taxed. Will be, there will be a realized uh, gain of taxable gain. But the good news is it looks like it's each year. So, I mean, if I could had enough property, I guess I could do uh, enough of these every year where I could get a lot of deferral. Yeah, but if you have a property worth more than a million dollars, then obviously you can't cut up the property and sell it in separate pieces. But that that has its own set of issues as well, right? So 1031 exchanges, I understand, is a tax deferral, but there's also a benefit to the economy, right? When people buy property, they trigger legal costs, brokerage fees, property improvements, construction, financing, it triggers the it's, it's it's good for the economy, even though the taxpayer is deferring the gain. So that again has been on the list for years and years, and you know here it is again. So I would say stay tuned, Charlie. Because of time, I I think we're gonna probably end it with those. But I mean, there are other things like, for example, the the limiting the use of donor advised funds to avoid private foundation payout requirements, taxing carried interests as ordinary income for investment professionals and other things that just, you know, it remains to be seen how much, if, if any, of these proposals really become reality. This past March at the Heckerling Conference, which is our nation's largest estate planning conference typically held down in, in Orlando, Florida, several speakers speculated it was unlikely for any of this to get enacted. But I really feel like trend law changes in a time of year where most of the country is dealing with, you know, super high inflation, a war in Ukraine, and the prolonged impact of COVID, well, that's a, that's a fool's errand. That said, it does appear the administration is responding to some of the criticism of Build Back Better, which was 
you know, now they're responding with repackaging that includes specific details to let the proposals find a more favorable uh, reception, at least, you know, like I said, with at least 50 percent of Congress. But really since, Charlie, since 2017 under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, where we took that federal state tax exemption and basically doubled it, most taxpayers switched their shift and focus on estate planning or state tax reduction to income tax reduction. And so with even higher income and capital gains taxes looming on the horizon, along with the increased visibility of trust assets, you said, by the IRS, individuals need to really give uh, a lot of thought and a lot of consideration to how they preserve and, and transfer their wealth for, the, for their families. Yeah, I think it's really important people pay attention to this Greenback program and, and see how it develops over the next few months. And don't forget, we're going into a mid, midterm elections here, too, which make this, this more complicated as well. Should, this should be a lot of fun watching this over the next few months. Charlie, I think that will do it for this round. Uh, it looks like uh, we'll have to keep our ears to the ground to see how things go. I, it seems to me like the administration is taking a, a more thoughtful approach after, I say, licking their wounds from the outcome of the first attempt at Build Back Better. And we'll just have to see how things shake out. But Charlie, I want to thank you for your time today. I appreciate you being with me. All right. Thank you, James. Glad to be here. And listener, as always, if you would like to discuss your personal financial planning, reach out to us through our website, palacecapitaladvisors.com. That's P-A-L-L-A-S capitaladvisors.com. To all of our listeners, we wish you the very best. Look forward to connecting you with you next time on the Palace Perspectives podcast. Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You should consult the legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances. These materials are provided for general information and educational purposes based on publicly available information from sources believed to be reliable. We cannot assure the accuracy or completeness of these materials. The information in these materials may change at any time and without notice. The information contained herein is for informational purposes only, is not personalized investment, advice and should not be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any particular security, sector, or strategy to any individual person or entity. Investment advice offered through Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor.